You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries is the number one source for all batteries throughout the United States. They have thousands upon thousands of retail stores all over the U.S. And in those retail stores, they have specialists that are dedicated to helping you with all your battery problems. From your truck to your trail camera and everything in between, Interstate Batteries has the batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into your local retail store or visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Before we get this party started, here's a message from one of our Land and Legacy clients. Who knows how many realtors that can help you across North America buy and sell land. Um, but if your goal and objective is to buy recreational ground and to make it as best as possible with the least amount of effort and cost, I don't know why you wouldn't use um, – land and legacy basically i i'm a research guy i did a lot of research and um myself and some other folks we we own a decent amount of property currently but we are wanting to buy recreational ground and improve it and then sell it again and and maybe we'll keep some parcels but for the most part we're gonna we're gonna try to make this you know try to generate long-term revenue and and income and and um, capital appreciation with this and um, there's just not many companies that I'm even aware of in the Midwest that do both the habitat plan consulting and who are knowledgeable from a QDMA standpoint. And having gone through Deer Steward 1 and Deer Steward 2, I can say that you know there's a lot of habitat consultants out there, but not many of them actually do it from a biological proven research based standpoint and so you've got that side which is half of the coin and then the other side of the coin is a company who also sends understands the real estate side and understands opportunity and understands that so i don't know why you wouldn't use the most efficient possible model which is using a company that does both um i i i think for me i i own a couple of businesses outside of this um and and have employees and, and i don't have a lot of time and so anytime i can make something more efficient and reduce my cost and bring an expert into the equation. Um, even if I think I may be fairly knowledgeable in an area, you're just going to make better decisions and, and, and everything's going to be, it's just going to be streamlined and just makes more sense. All right. So Chad, let me ask you a question when we get this kicked off. Um, it is January. Today is the 11th. And you've got three hours to go and say, today I'm putting habitat on the ground. Three hours, January the 11th. What do you go and do? Hmm. Run a chainsaw. <laughs> yeah, I figured there's you no, would say there's that. very, very little doubt in my mind what I would do. Yeah. 
let's say you're in a uh, in an area that is, uh, let's say Southern Iowa, uh, a crop dominated landscape. Uh, what would you do? I would probably, depending on run a chainsaw. Yeah. (laughs) The reason I say that is because it doesn't matter where you're at. uh, You're going to have, you'd be hard pressed as a deer hunter and as a guy focused on deer to, to do something that's more beneficial for, for whitetail deer immediately and in, in future years and then run a chainsaw. And that could be through edge feathering, timber stand improvement, putting in bedding thickets. It's just, your clothes ought to smell like, like chainsaw bar oil and gas this time of year. There's so many things that you can do with a chainsaw this time of year. And like, like this time of year, we've, I've, I've done it before and I mentioned on the podcast before, but and we're still in bow season. This is the perfect time because I've already been chainsawing. If I'd have had time today, this would have been a perfect day to go hang a stand, cut TSI around it, go back, change clothes, and get in the stand. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, so, guys, once again, Chad's back on the podcast this week. Matt's still been traveling. And uh, we are... Uh, bringing to you guys a podcast that hopefully is um, uh, a, a, a deeper th- thought. Uh, this is for you guys that it's for everybody who's interested in habitat improvement. Um, this podcast is really kind of designed for the white-tailed deer guy who's really thinking on, on how to improve it for the deer. But a lot of the practices we're going to talk about are great for for all the native species. But this podcast, obviously, if you've seen it by now, it's called Fragmenting the Farm. Um, and we are really, this is really going to help, hopefully, you guys that um, have been putting habitat improvement on your place for years and years and years, and you've reached the point going, I don't know what else to do. Or you guys that have just bought a farm, and you're like, okay, I don't know where to start, and you're trying to draw up a plan. And so if you're in those anywhere in between those two, hopefully you get something out of this podcast. And it, I mean, it's, it can honestly be overwhelming to just, Oh, from both sides of it. We be, get, I mean, we get overwhelmed. Times where we're like, what am I going to do today? Yeah. Where, where do I really want to go? That's right. And between, <laughs> between this podcast and the year in the life of a land manager, um, you should be set for a while. Um, I ask you a question, Chad, and maybe uh, I might be putting you on the spot here again. Um, do you find it to be more important to have a food plot in the correct area or a bedding area in the correct area? I would, I would say a bedding. That's what I like would think. One of our bedding. That's what. That's what my opinion would be. I mean, you tell me what you think but honestly i can tell a difference compared to when we had just food plots and would just do some tsi here and there but it was uh, over a a complete landscape or the whole area the deer movement is sporadic i mean with just a food plot at times you have it it's it's somewhat predictable but not oh yes Absolutely. The bedding thicket, it's one you can you can see a lot more predictable movements to me. Absolutely. I would agree one hundred percent with that. And then that's why I ask you that because 
I think it's easy to write up a habitat management plan to say, okay, here's your food plots. Um, and and now it's all, <laughs> you know, it's all changed. Here's your, you put all these yeah. food plots in, it's well, all going to be better. And I'm like, yeah, you know that they're going to be feeding here, but that doesn't tell us when they're going to be feeding here. I think the, another, I think the another. one of the most important things to me is like if I just bought a farm, I would be wanting, because you put in a food plot, and you're like, ooh, this is a bad area. You just don't plant it, and it grows back in beneficial weeds the first couple of years, and problem solved. But if you go in and cut in a bedding area, let's say your farm has a lot of timber, and you go in and you cut a bedding area, and it's in the wrong spot, <laughs> there's not really much you can do yeah. about it. Well, and that's what I was going to say, and another side of it is it's not as easy as just going, eh, I want my deer to bed here. And yes. from the start of both season to the end of both season, the deer are going to bed in this spot and they're going to come through this spot 30 yards from my tree stand. And I'm going to be able to shoot any buck that I want to. Yeah. It's, it's not that easy. Yeah. And I mean, we're going to touch on this later in the podcast, but it's one where you have to have a variety of those bedding tickets or bedding areas. Absolutely. Different locations according to the certain times of the year. Absolutely. And and I think that's where so many times we can we can get f- so excited about I'm going to put a food plot here to be great and and a lot of times we're kind of forced to put food plots where unless we have a dozer or we're willing to pay a guy we're kind of stuck with the open acres that we have to put in food plots. And yeah. I mean this is definitely speaking from experience, no <laughs> yeah. doubt. And yeah. all of these, yeah, of, we've put food plots where we could. And then we've hunted according to the deer movements. Absolutely. The what we the the most predictable deer movement that we could get uh-huh. in quotation marks, because yes. a lot of times it was all over the place. Yes, for sure, it was all over the place. And then, but now, I mean, I've said this a lot lately on the podcast, but it's like if 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 I just bought a farm. The first thing I'm really doing is trying to study my maps and putting boots on the ground. And go, okay, this is where I want, you know, the deer are already kind of bedding here. This is an area they want to be. I want this. To, I can access this. I can hunt on the downwind side. I can hunt deer between this and the area that I'm going to put a food plot in or my neighbor's crop field. Um, but most importantly, I can maneuver through the property and not spook deer out of it every single time I take my kids on the four-wheeler. We don't drive through here and blow them out. And so yep. having your bedding areas put in the perfect place is well, is crucial. A lot of times you can walk the property and it's not just it's not just going out and picking these. A lot of times... You can let the deer and the terrain tell you where that bedding thicket needs to be. Absolutely. And it's and that's gonna make it that much more dynamite. It's now, like one of our one of our buddies had just bought a property here a couple of years ago and I went out with him and looking at it. And I was like I told him, I said, This right here is is your bedding area. No doubt about it. And like he's told me all year, he's like, dude, you were you were completely right. He's like, I've done some stuff. He's like, those deer come out of that every night, late season. Every yeah. night, late season, they're coming out of there. Yeah. Yeah. Just in a line. I will play a little bit, I'll flip that coin and say, 
Now, if your habitat is very poor and you don't have adequate cover anywhere around, which can be a lot of places, if you cut out a half acre somewhere and it's just thick stuff, you're probably going to use it. And it may not be perfect. It may not be ideal yeah. location, but the deer, that's why you need to really that's, think about where you're putting your bedding area cuts in. Because if a you lot of put them in the wrong the, spot, you're stuck with it. A lot of times those are the same areas, though, that the deer bedding in cedar thickets because that's where nobody goes. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this podcast, we'll go ahead and get started in it, but it's just another podcast we're going to reiterate the importance of diversity on your farm and the importance of understanding native plants um by now you I know but if you just joining us you understand you you're if you if this is the first podcast and i will say the last few podcasts we put out have been very popular we've been getting a bunch of comments from people that are first-time listeners so um maybe it's good that on this podcast i re i reiterate our stance and we 100% believe that diversity is key and native plants are the answer. Uh, we can use native plants to manipulate the landscape to reach our goals as a white-tailed deer hunter and say I want the biggest healthiest deer we can have. Um, well by golly we can do that with native plants. Uh, everything that we preach and talk about minus food plots. Food plots is the one part of the thing that um, you just don't have, people aren't planting, not many people, and not us yet, but are planting areas in natives and calling it a food plot. Um, because we go with clovers, we go with uh, alfalfa and soybeans and things like that. But as far as the habitat, yes, there is a difference between food plots and actual habitat management. Uh, we focus on native plants and removing non-native plants. So there's... We hope that... Hopefully this can, especially for like a, say, larger landowner, help with the emphasis on as much diversity throughout your property and not just diversity. Uh, I've got uh, I've got a diversity on my whole, say, thousand acres. If you can have diversity throughout every hundred acre piece of that thousand acres. That's right. That's right. Yep. And so this is uh, really going to help um, hopefully motivate you guys and, and give you, if you're stuck in the mud and you're like, I, can't, I don't know what else to do, hopefully this will give you some ideas. So um, we use this, this gridding out the farm. Um, we're use, we've done it on our own farm. We've done it on the Prairie Hollow property as a way to really unpack the farm. And look at it from a standpoint of going, okay, sometimes you look at an aerial image and and it may be, it may be, let's just say 600 acres. You look at it and you're like, 600 acres, okay, there's, and then you look at each acre and you're like, whew, there's a lot to, to do here. There's a lot to understand. There's a lot of things I need to do. Um but then if you pull back and you go, okay, it's 600 acres, but 500 of it's closed canopy forest, then you're going, well, there's really only two the habitat features. There's there's uh, grassland and there's forest. That's not a, a diversity. There may be some diversity within the grassland, but as a whole, there's not a lot of diversity on the landscape. So 
This technique is what we do when we're really trying to dissect a farm even more. Um, and so fragmenting the farm is a, is a technique that we're going to talk about and hopefully help you guys uh, look at your farm in a different light. Um, so a big part of this really comes to the fact of, of trying to shrink home ranges of deer um, by providing more benefits per acre. Um, an analogy that I'll use for you guys is if you have a, a town um, setting outside a big city, your town may not have certain things that you need that are in the city. So you have to go to the city to get those items, whether it be a grocery store or whatever it is. You have to go to that city. Well, as you go to that city... What is in that? More people doing the same thing you're doing. All going there to get the items that you were needing. But when you do that, you're running into people you don't know, people you don't recognize, people you're not sure who they are and, and if they're a good person or a bad person. Therefore, your stress levels increase. Because your stress level increases... If you uh, and you're already now stressed out, probably a little bit of road rage, probably a little bit of irritation, and now you're just in a bad mood and you're stressed out. Now picture doing that day in, day out, day in, day out for months on end. You're not reaching your total health because, or and and being a healthy person because you're constantly stressed out. Stress is a bad thing. Deer are doing that same thing during times of the year if you aren't giving them the groceries they need in their home range, I, in their town. I think sometimes it's, I mean, it's a good time to bring up. Also, just according to some people's personalities, that's stressing them more than others. And Absolutely. in the same sense, you can bring that to deer. And they don't all have the same You have to look at your home range of the deer. Sometimes it's a product of not having everything, and sometimes it's a product of just that deer's personality. It's a roamer, and yep. no matter what you do, they're going to cover a large territory. That's right. Yep. But sometimes your deer are covering a large, a large territory because they don't have everything they need. That's right. And those are the deer that you can make a difference in this stuff. Yep. And I think, so, the, the, that, that story, that analogy is really trying to go, uh, let you understand if it's kind of like, I'll just use the analogy where where I live. There's a, a grocery store that has a really, it's just a really great grocery store. But where I'm from, my hometown, they don't have the same grocery store. And anytime my wife and I talk about moving there, it's like, oh, but I still want to shop at this grocery store. Uh, the one that is right here in the town, two minutes from my house that I'm currently at. It's the same thing with deer. It's like, you know, we, we want everything we need in a close proximity to where we feel safe, our comfort zone. And a lot of times we don't get that, both as humans and as deer. And so when you're really trying to think about that, kind of use that analogy of going, okay, well, I want to shrink home ranges. Home ranges shrunk down mean less stress. But it also means you have to have more food, more diversity on your landscape um, that way you can shrink down a home range. Shrinking home ranges means better hunting success, lower stress levels, 
Lower stress levels means healthier deer. Healthier deer mean uh, more deer and bigger antlers. And so for me, we're our, I guess this whole fragmenting your farm is to lower stress to, I hate to say it, but make bigger antlers. As much as I yeah. hate that phrase. <laughs> but, but and, and doing this, doing this fragmentation and adding diversity, yeah, and a lot of times it's aimed at deer, but all of our other wildlife species are benefiting from the same practice. Oh, tremendous. I mean, that goes without saying. If you fragment your farm so much, like when we start getting well, into some of these different things, you're going to have more small game. You're going to have more. Um, obviously, if if we're talking and promoting that, it's, yeah. it's not just the deer thing. Yeah. yeah, if I'm promoting something, I, I'll promise you that outside of food plots, uh, I can't think of anything that we'd be promoting that would be detrimental to quail um, at all, really. So, yeah. anyway, um, so here we are. Let's talk about some of the stress levels, um, lowering stress level during stressful times. That's our goal. Um Late winter herds. My goodness, we're getting in the, you know, it's early January, getting ready to be mid-January, and we're looking at um, several more months of hard conditions. We've got Wisconsin, Michigan, guys like that that are probably already seeing this. Large herds of deer out in crop fields or food plots and suburbs, wherever they can find food, they're herded up and they're trying to survive. Um, We've got small amounts of food, large amounts of deer. That just automatically would stress a deer out. Um, not n- Now we've got all these bucks who may or may not be going through uh, that are fighting injuries. They could be healthy. They're trying to survive. They may be bullying each other around. There's aggression. They're trying to find the food to survive. So it just causes lots and lots of stress. Um, not only that, because they're starting to herd up in congregated areas if there's not an abundant amount of small game predators may be keying in on them and trying to pick off the weak links so not only are they dealing with the stress of the other bucks or if it's large doe groups and you've got a lead doe and another lead doe and they're trying to box it out then you have predators in the mix and now they've got to deal with that too so stress levels are increased even more um, and so and any, anyone who's anyone who's hunted much late season knows just how frustrating that can be when you're on a big field with a lot of deer herded up, how on edge they are and how any little noise, anything clears the field. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And it's how like, often that happens. Yep. Absolutely. You'll see one deer come on or one family group of does come onto the field and another group come onto the field and they'd, it may be the first time they've seen each other. Matt had a hunt like that where um, you just got that impression where there was a group of bucks that had been hanging out together through through the fall on and off, and then all of a sudden, here's this new guy. We'd never seen him before. He shows up on the food plot, and all of a sudden it's like bowing up at each other, ears laid back, ready to fight, and it's like Matt said, it was like the first time they'd ever met, and you get that. And then... As the season goes on, maybe another doe group or family group has to move in because food has ran out in another part of their home range, so they're moving around. Then all of a sudden it turns into where you've got a huge herd of deer that really don't know each other that well, 
and they're trying to sort out dominance and sort out each other and get a feel for each other, and it's just a high-stress environment. And then they got coyotes or other predators <laughs> nipping at their heels trying to pick them off. It's um, just a really rough time. It's a very rough time, and it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, no. think and historically it's... our landscape was highly diverse, but um, there were a lot of predators, and I think you had these herds moving around, and, and uh, winter months could really – the natural way of animal populations is a cycle, and they fluctuate, and they, they rise and fall. And we're in 2020 now trying to keep it at max capacity all the time for the rest of our life. And I want the herd, deer herd to be at maximum holding capacity. And you just, you're really breaking the natural cycle of it. And uh, so lar- large... Well, I don't her- think we realize either, like... You know, in, in a lot of the Midwest, we've been used to, I mean, people say, oh, there's corn and beans, there's plenty of food to get them through. But naturally, as your technology and your equipment increase, they're getting more and more efficient to where if they aren't cover cropping, a lot of these massive crop fields have very, very little food. Absolutely. I mean, they are bare. Yes. And you talk about a very severe lack of food for a lot of these animals. Yep. And I mean, don't even, we haven't even talked about the quail with winter. And if you don't have high diversity um, and a large amount of weeds and different plants, um, if you're, if you're counting on spilled grain to be the food source for quail, you probably don't have any quail. Um, Then you could go into even summer months, uh, major droughts, uh, we have small amounts of water and large amounts of deer trying to get to that one, uh, that one water hole. Uh, it kind of reminds me of like the Africa, the African water hole hunt you see on the Outdoor Channel, where you've got a guy sitting in a blind and everything from baboons and warthogs to kudu and elephant are coming into it's, this water it's hole. Stuff like we're we're hearing of Australia right now. Oh man, it's awful. Where they're in such a severe drought. I I heard a report that they were going to. They were going to come in and have helicopters kill like 10,000 feral camels because they were trying to save water for the native animals. Uh, I, I knew Australia was just infested with non-native animals. And so, wow, that's a lot of camels. Yeah. Whew, that'd be a stinking, stinking pile. Uh, hopefully they're going to donate the meat or something, but... I think that I, I when I think of small amounts of water, I think of EHD. What a perfect recipe for knocking a herd back into holding capacity. Not to say that's what EHD is, but you see a lot of times where, <laughs> I mean, let's just pay attention over the next three years because there'll be EHD breakout somewhere. But let's listen for the guys who are complaining about a lot of deer and seeing a lot of deer or listen to the crop farmers complaining about a lot of deer. And then let's see where the hot spots are with EHD. Because it seems, in my honest opinion, I've seen that kind of correlate between the two. Well, what was it? Was it 2012, 2011? Oh, that was the year, 2012. What year was it that it hit? And, like, all of these places that are well-known for large quantities of deer and people sitting in trees, like Milk River. Yeah. Milk River, Montana, and tons and tons of deer. I mean, just wiping out herds. 
how many deer did we find in our area where we don't have as many? And and it was within within our county. There were areas that had higher higher populations, and bordering counties that have ridiculously high populations. Yes. How many deer did we find dead? None. I think I found one. Okay. One deer. Huh. Yeah, I don't even remember what you like, find in that one. It just it, you don't just don't see it. In in areas that the population is within that reasonable amount, you don't see that yeah. as often. You're going to lose some, but in areas with very, very large populations, they're so concentrated. Yes. It seems to be a, a lot higher losses. Yes, absolutely. I would agree 100%. And uh, so <laughs> we'll get into it, but small amounts of water, large amounts of deer, um Put your put your deer herd under the magnifying glass, and you're going to start seeing the, the cracks in the armor. And it could be it could be the lack of quality water uh, across your landscape. Um, and it's it's bad to say, but it's nature's going to have a way of leveling even itself out. Yeah, for I mean, sure. It's, it's sad. It's a sad way, but it's if we're not doing our job of keeping things in check, it's going to keep it in check. Yeah, absolutely. I saw I saw something the other day, not to get off top, but a lot of times you'll see this like nature's way of going, man, something is really out of whack and it'll almost knock out though. Almost knock out. It could go all the way up to like ninety five percent gets wiped out. But there's that five percent that's usually really, really strong and really, really eager to start repopulating the area. And I saw a I saw an article, I think it was on social media, but it was about the uh ash trees and how the emerald ash borers just wrecking havoc across the country on the ash trees but what they're finding is there's there's small populations where um they weren't some of those places you go up in michigan you're going to see almost the entire forest of dead snags that are all ash trees to where it was like 95 percent of the forest was ash but they're finding the little pockets where they were like mixed in with oaks. They were starting to find that those weren't affected. And so the, the article was like, maybe this was kind of a thing of going that when there was a large, it's like a disease hitting a, a community. Um, they were so abundant that it just went across the, the whole forest and wiped them out. But when they were spaced out and they were in a diversity of, of the landscape, they were kind of hidden and they couldn't find those emerald ash borer, didn't find all the ash trees, therefore they weren't all dead. Um, so it was a very interesting article and it kind of reiterates diversity, diversity, diversity. So anyway, you still there, Chad? Yep, I'm all here. All right, here we go. Winter kills, of course, and starvation is stress-induced um, things that are are that we're trying to avoid. But winter kill uh, could be from a lot of things: starvation. It could be just high stress levels, predation, whatever it is. People complain about winter kill a lot. Um, so let's go over the 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 main features that white-tailed deer need. Um, and how we're going to break them up and, and use these four words to improve our landscape on as uh, and fragment our landscape. So 
Here's the needs of a white-tailed deer. Food, cover, water, security. I don't know who started putting in that order, but I almost want to flip it and say security, food, cover, water. Um, actually, I'd probably, yeah, you could flip-flop cover and food back and forth, but security I would put at the front of that if we're looking for. Honestly, the way we do a lot of stuff, that food and cover can be kind of intertwined. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, with the, I mean, with a lot natives. of our cover is a, yeah. a old, old field, early secessional stuff that has a lot of food as it, well as cover. It could be old field or it could be, you know, perennial grassland or like a, a well uh, established grassland, or it could be a young, a young forest young, with herbaceous, young timber. Uh, with herbaceous plants uh, intermixed. So food, um, we'll go into it first. Food comes in many forms, but the main forms of food for white-tailed deer are herbaceous plants. So we could be talking about pokeweed, ragweed, um, giant ragweed. There's so many different herbaceous plants. There's, so uh, it I could mean, be goldenrods, things like that. Um, then you have native fruit or hard mass. Uh, so we could go with well, you've got soft mast, hard mast. Yeah, there. So um, we've got plums, persimmons, and then you go to the hard side, and we we'll go look at just acorns. Um, is our main ones most popular? Um, then you also have woody browse, which shoot, there's all kinds. Of mainly, different I mean, the, I just could say too, it varies for your area. Oh, We're yeah. going to mainly touch on the stuff for our area in southern Missouri. Yeah. But this is the reason to go and do research and find your native hard mass, soft mass, native forbs that are browsed, that are highly preferred browse in your areas. Yeah. Well, I, I try to always pick ones that are very broad. That's why I say like yeah. ragweed and American plum and then, of course, oaks. Um and then American persimmon and um, what was the other one I said? Oh, American plum. So uh, pretty spread out. It could be, it could even be nannyberry um, for you guys up north uh, or gray dogwood, uh, any types of the dogwood. Um, then you go into woody browse, which is going to be young forest. It could be oaks or it could be shrubs. Uh, it could even be blackberries. Um, woody browse, a big one. Um, a huge one, probably the most popular out of all of it, because when you look at you look at a white-tailed deer and what its diet consists of from January to December, there's going to be a big part of that in woody browse. Um, and then another one for food is food plots and crops. Your deer should be able to survive completely without food plots or crops. If you're depending on your food plots to feed your deer year-round, You've got a, you've you've missed the boat and you've got a huge mistake and a huge kink in your armor, um, because you would nah, hope that you have something besides just plantable area. Hope, you would hope long before food plots and crop fields were put on the put on the plains or put on the landscape, deer whitetail deer were still surviving. So. Your food plots plants. are all you think that your deer are surviving on. You must be in like a prairie, and you need to just let it be a prairie. Yeah. So those are your four main types for food. We're going to cover. We're looking at cover for spring, summer, fall, winter. Um, it could be thermal cover for both summer and winter. Um, and then we're looking at cover for south-facing, north-facing, east-facing, and west-facing slopes. 
Um, and if you're in a flat piece of ground, well, we're looking at um, a variety of different types of cover from young forest to herbaceous plants to coolies to low water areas. We're just trying to look at a diversity, even on cover. Um, for me, thermal cover, gosh, how, why did we even say it? It might as well, we might as well talk about it, but Eastern Red Cedar. Ah, <laughs> uh, here we go again, another podcast where we're going to mention it, but that's what I, I think people automatically assume thermal cover for, uh, when somebody says thermal cover, it's like, oh, cedar thicket. Well, that's not exactly what we're talking about all the time. Thermal cover is we're trying to regulate body temperatures. We're trying to stay cool in the summer and stay warm in the winter. Um, so we're looking. Thermal at- cover can even be. I mean, it can be, say, a shrub thicket with bigger leaves that keep yeah. them cool in the summer. That's right. It could be sumac grove next to a cool. Like a deep That'd shade. Be great. That would be great summer thermal cover. Or it could be a north-facing slope that's more closed canopy little bit more of a forest so they can lay in there and the breeze can blow through underneath the canopy um or it, can be a, it could be it can a, be a patch shrub of, thicket on a south facing slope that blocks the wind yeah with a bunch of native grasses around it so the sun's shining in on them but the wind's not getting to them um or it could be a patch of white cedar in michigan that uh that they can lay in um, and the and the sun's not two foot deep, and they have some brows available. Um, the snow, not the sun. The, yeah, what I say. <laughs> okay. You said the sun is two foot deep. Oh, the, yeah, the snow is two foot deep. The sun, ooh, that's hot. That's a little warm for them. They need better thermal cover. But uh, And it could be south-facing slope for uh, middle of the winter when they're trying to bed in the sun, north-facing in August when they're trying to stay cool, or east-facing uh, in the morning and, and it's really cold and they're trying to be the first the first thing the sun touches in the morning to warm them up um, so needless to say you need a diversity yeah. of bedding types that's right bedding areas or, for the deer and i say east facing because i said it could be the first place the sun touches in the morning or it could be east facing that way they're in the the shade through the remainder of the afternoon we we've had this discussion many times while hunting but like especially you look at say southern missouri for example there's times in the winter where we go from they need they need bedding for warmth and in the same day bed somewhere where it's shaded so they're out of the sun yeah i mean i think that's why we can have temperature swings so it's it's you hate to get locked in on well my deer are bedding in this little bedding thicket all day long but that's why having bedding thickets in the right spot are crucial because you could have, and I think that's why sometimes you see, or a lot of times you see deer bed on like little knolls on a ridge or a side ridge where it's a little knoll. And it's like, if they walk 20 foot that way, they could be in the shade or if they walk 20 foot that way, they could be in the sun for the rest of the afternoon. Um, but if you lay out a bedding area perfectly and, and you take one of the spots where they already naturally want to be, and you make it that much better, it's like they can still, even though you cut 95% of the trees, they can still find shade because of the logs, because of the regrowth, uh, because of just the lay of the terrain. They could still find shade, but now you gave them even better cover, so it makes that spot even more productive. And that's why laying out bedding thickets in the right area is crucial and can make a good bedding area a great bedding area. 
Um, and so combining areas that they naturally want to bed and putting in even better cover, whew, sign, and, just, just sign I, it I up. You know where they're going to be. It's also worth mentioning, obviously, this, I mean, we've dealt with this some on our place, but obviously, especially a smaller property, it's going to be tough to find all of these different bedding oh, situations absolutely. throughout your property. But the more that you can find, the more diversity in that bedding, the better off you are. Yeah, this is like one of those, like, you would think this podcast is for larger landowners, but if you're a guy on 20 acres, don't look at this as saying, well, I can't do this because I only have 20 acres. Look at this and... And, and write down these things, herbaceous plants, native fruits, uh, so you've got hard mass, soft mass, woody brows. Write all these down and go, okay, how can I put these on my place? Um, if I'm missing these, how can I get them here? Because the more diversity you can have, the more year-round uh, the more year round activity you're going to have. It's like Kyle and Frank talk so much about usable space, but this is the same thing we're talking about here with whitetails, usable space. To where you have more benefits, more um, attractiveness throughout the year. Um, next up is water. Uh, you could have impounded water with ponds, small lakes, or even little wildlife opening or little wildlife holes. Um, you could also have streams, and you could also have seeps. And I think the most popular would be seeps or impounded water that's in the small scale. Um, of course, they get a lot of their water uptake from their from the food they eat, but during stressful times, they may need to use these water holes. Um, speaking more on the summertime and and hot parts of the fall, uh, when you could when you could if you added water holes across your landscape, you're only going to help. Uh, it's it's the times when you chance. see the when you see the people putting like the the little swimming pools and stuff and having deer on camera nonstop when it's the really stressful in the summer it's so dry yeah and the deer flock to those things that's right yep they do and and a, the, that could be something where you add one to the edge of a food plot and it's like well you know it's not they're getting it's we've had a lot of rain but if they're in your food plot and they're standing 20 yards from your from a, a little water hole and maybe they're 60 yards from you, but that pond is 35 yards from you. Maybe there's a chance they're still going to use that water hole because it's there. It's easy. It's it's just something very easy to get to. That's where I'm going, you know, that's not a, a huge problem for, for your hunting strategy. Now, if you're trying to lower stress levels, think about it. Once again, going back to the story about stress levels in the summer. If you've got, let's say there's 40 deer who regularly live on your place and you only have one one water hole um and you get into a wicked drought and it's october they either can all use your water hole or they have to go to somebody else's farm to find water which one do you want well i'm going to go with c none of the above i want to add water uh, other water sources on the on the farm so next right. one oh go ahead well, I was just going to say, and this emphasizes another thing, the cost share, if you have some amount of property, you can get cost share to have a pond put in. Absolutely. Yep. A little wildlife watering hole. There's there's money out there for that where 
don't be overwhelmed thinking, well, I don't have any money to pay a guy with a dozer. Yep. <laughs> There's cost you money, though, to get that done. For sure. Um, last one, we go into security. Man, this one's so overlooked, it's not even funny. Uh, and I don't think people, uh, a lot of times, I don't think people fully comprehend. I think it's misunderstood. What security is, because uh, a CRP field, most likely, um, if if the neighbor's dogs are running through it, or <laughs> it's right next to the highway, or it's only three foot tall, and it's not that secure, or uh, it's a prime bedding area, but it's right next to your front gate, and every time you drive in, um, they can see you, it's probably not that secure. Um and so the ideal scenario is great cover that's diverse um, that also is secure, meaning that they feel safe there. Um, for an analogy of, of humans, it'd be like um, you may have a house that feels um, like good cover, but if the doors don't lock, you may not feel secure in it. Um, or there are no doors. You're probably not going to feel secure in it, even though it, it has the appearance of cover. Um, it may not have uh, security, so you may not feel comfortable there. Therefore, you're going to do some more work or more shopping to find a house that does lock or have doors. Um, so many times, I, I think this is where there's so there's guys that I could list, I could start saying their names, and everybody goes, "Oh yeah, they kill big deer every single year." Um, there's guys in your part of the world. Um, that are probably the best deer hunter that has ever walked on this earth that nobody knows because he doesn't care about being on a camera and he knows a secret and he knows where there's security. Um, I think if our target is to kill mature deer, uh, big deer, security is one of our number one things that we're, we're trying to put more of it on our property. Um, so, so once again, what is security? It's adequate cover that they feel safe in. Um, so, I mean, in, in the same sense with your front gate scenario, there's also security that they feel in places like that where they know they're safe because you drive by them every day. Yep. People drive by them and they never get messed with. And that's where really, really stands out on public ground. Oh, absolutely. And, and even suburban hunting, um, because you could condition deer to be used to human presence to where they see humans every single day walking their dog, riding four-wheelers, whatever it is, and they do that every single day, they're going to be like, well, they're not a threat. They'll look at Yellowstone even. If you go into any of our national parks and you see where there's a lot of animals, those, those animals are so secure that they don't feel a threat at all. But I'll guarantee you that if they ever opened it up to hunting, the first year would change everything. That's, to me, security is the quickest to change. Oh, for sure. It's like everyone knows that farm that some, some old farmer owns that nobody's hunted in 20 years that's loaded with game that it's like, oh, they just stand out there along the road. Nobody messes with them. It would be so easy to hunt. You can go in there one day, and it completely flips around. Absolutely, security. And security can, can flip like a 
I mean, at the it's it's almost like trust with humans. Um, it's hard to build, but it's really easy to break. Um, you know, you, it's something, especially if you're targeting mature deer. It's like it may take a little while to get the adequate cover and and stay out of it or make those deer feel safe. But then in two hunts, boom, security's over because you did something stupid and now they're out of there. And it's like, oh, <clears throat> start all over perfect again. Exa- our, our farm is a perfect example of that, where we grew up the way we gun hunted. Because we didn't see a lot of deer, it was a lot of pushes. I mean, walking all over everything. It took multiple years to build it up to where it was like all of a sudden you saw daylight movement during gun season. You saw daylight movement after gun season. Yep. I mean, it's... But we could flip that over real quick. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, a lot of times I think, too, people see this with, with uh, if you're only getting pictures of nocturnal deer. Um, you're going, ah, dadgummit, why are they not here during daylight? Um, or, well, I'll get through this thought and then I'll, I'll, I'll flip that. But um, why are deer not here during daylight? Well, it could be because they're bedding in secure areas but they'll navigate to unsecure areas for food when it's a secure time for them, if that makes sense. So they'll bed in secure bedding areas. They'll move to areas that are unsecure, but they'll use the cover of darkness to keep them secure. And you see that all too often. And the only way to fix that is hopefully improve cover on your place in areas that can also provide security. Um, you see that all the time. You see the, where you really see it is in game cameras on food plots surrounded by closed canopy timber uh-huh, all sure. the time. That's it. Yes. And I mean, you look at our farm, if, if, there's areas where you're going, okay, where's the most daylight activity? I would uh, hands down tell you it's going to be the areas that we've got the best cover around it. No doubt. Fiasco Every food time. plot is always. And that's the one that you check cameras and there's there's deer walking through it at 11 o'clock in the morning. Yes. And you're like, where, like what in the world? It kind of is difficult to hunt because sometimes you go in and there's, yeah. there'll be deer in the food plot or. Yeah, it's just, and a, that's the other side of it is there are times that you're like, okay, every time you go in to hunt, you have to ease in. Yes. There's no run in and, and hunt because there's always a chance there's a deer in that field. And plot. flip that is, but when we do see deer and they run out, they don't blow out of there. They just hop to the hop into the wood line and, and hunker down because they feel safe. Yeah. And so, I mean, they're used to us being around. Absolutely. All right, guys. So the action, here's your action, your call to action on how you can do this on your farm. Grid out the farm and use it appropriately to where if you've got a 500-acre farm, bust it up in a 40-acre square. So I want you to take a, a ruler, and I want you to start just drawing tic-tac-toe grids across the farm um, to make could be 10 acre parcels it could be 20 acre parcels um use kind of the ratio of if it's 100 acres break it up into 10 parcels if it's 500 acres break it up into 10 parcels if it's a thousand acres break it up into 10 parcels um 
And now, so now you have your grids. You've gridded it out. You've got lines all over it. A whole bunch of tic-tac-toe things. Here's what we're going to do. Now we're going to color coordinate all plant communities or habitat features and also differentiate the age of growth. So if you have, we're going to designate old fields as purple. Now, old fields we like to maintain with fire or grazing or, oh, I almost hate to say it, Let's just say, uh, say bush use, hogging. Use light before it. A light, light disking. A light, light disking or a very light mowing just to clip back the the woody species, the, the amount of woodies coming up. Um, and that could be just oak saplings, whatever it is. Um, that's our least favorite way of doing it, but there's a lot of guys that will do it, so we got to throw it in there. So if it's... An old field that's been burned three years ago, we're going to make that a darker shade of purple. If it's an old field that we're planning on or that burned last year, it's a light shade of purple. So you've got diversity within your color shades, uh, the shades of purple. All right, now we've got shrubs. Let's say we've got sumac shrubs, uh, sumac groves, that are great for summer thermal cover especially for bobwhite quail or, or uh, deer. Uh, so we've got shrubs species that we're going to differentiate out on the color orange. So it could be orange for uh, American plum. It could be light orange for sumac. It could be uh, medium orange for um, gray dogwood. Gray dogwood. Um, so, or it could be uh, a different color orange for American beautyberry. So you, we've got two different colors, but lots of different shades. So diversity among those. Next, let's go to um, let's go to grasslands. You could have a grassland that's a glade, or a grassland that's kind of a ridge top, more of dominated by tall grass. Um, could be a lot more big blue, little uh, big blue, and eastern gamma, uh, or it could be a grassland that's more of a a wetland, riparian area grassland. Um, there's diversity with the different plant species that are going to be in there. Uh, one could be more dominated by cool season natives like wood oats or river oats or some of our wild rice, or the other one could be more of our, if we go to a glade, which is in a grass, which is a type of grassland, it could be way more short grass, little blue and, uh, purple side three oats. on or side oats. So we've color coordinated our different types of grasslands. Um, and then we'll go right into savannas, which is a type of grassland, but it has a lot more, uh, has more trees on it than any, um, than, than a typical rolling prairie that we picture when we say grassland. Um, savanna is going to have a lot of grass, a lot of herbaceous plants, but it's also going to have scattered trees, which those scattered trees are going to provide, hopefully they're going to drop some, um, acorns. Uh, once we're talking savanna, this is an ecosystem that adapted with fire for years and years and years, so it's probably an oak-dominated savanna or pine. Or pine. And, Long uh, leaf, maybe? Yeah. and so uh, Or short leaf. And so we're looking at yeah. color-coordinating our forest, or, or excuse me, our grasslands. So 
Um, short grass grassland could be uh, light yellow, and our savannas could be really dark yellow. I'm mixing in with woodland, too. Now let's add shift over to woodlands. Let's get more into our forest types. Woodlands. We're looking well, at semi. I would consider the woodland grassland. Well, I, I, I would put it right on the fence. Uh, and yeah. I want to say a woodland is different than a savanna. They're not the same ecosystem. They're similar. But I think when you go into woodlands, you get more brambles. You get more um, woody regeneration. You get some more open areas with herbaceous plants and native grasses. But you don't have that open canopy like you would have in a savanna. Um, and so Chad's call it a call it more of a grassland. I may call it more of a forest, <laughs> and that's kind of a woodland. Uh, well, realistically, it should be a a merger of the two. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so you've given that a different color. We're we're going with uh, with red on our forests. Um, so woodland will do light red, very light red. Um, and then we'll go to like uh, young forest being more of a pink. Um, and our young forest, this is where if you've got a three-year-old clear cut, it may be light pink. If you've got a 10-year-old clear cut and it's still young forest, it may be darker pink. Um, and then you go to just a traditional mature forest, closed canopy, Open underneath, park-like timber. Solid red. Just your stop sign red. All right? I, I think and, this is a good opportunity to say, too, you can also do this as having multiple maps of all of these. This is to emphasize the the reason or the, the need to keep as many statistics as you can on your place. Yeah. And you, you do this, but you also would like to have a map of, if you're managing your timber, you can have a map that you color code according to what year it was cut. Yes, what year it was thinned or uh, what year it was TSI'd, um, thinned by a logging operation, TSI'd by you. Um, it is very important to keep records, uh, handwritten records, typed up records, or putting your records on maps um, to to really track your age of disturbance, your age of growth, um, to where young forest may be three different colors of pink on your landscape. Um, if you're a heavily timbered area, you may have multiple colors of pink or gridded out or lined up um, cross-hatched colors of pink um, to where we know that there's what do you know, Chad? Um, there is diversity within your age. So you have different <laughs> regeneration ages from your disturbance. Even on your forest, to your grasslands, to your old fields, to your different types of shrubs, there's diversity. And uh, because... Diversity within diversity. We've got diversity within diversity. My goodness, it took us to... This is almost podcast 200, I think. This might actually be 200. I think it might be 97, and the other podcast this week will be 98. But um, it's like 
we're now, we've preached so much about diversity, but wouldn't you know it, there's diversity within diversity. So let's just use um, gray dogwood as an example, okay? We've got great woody browse, but we also, during late summer, we've got fruit, which is going to be available for more food uh, for wildlife. But then once that fruit falls, we still have woody browse, and then we go into the winter, and we've got great woody browse, and then, but at the same time, year-round adequate cover. Pretty stinking awesome. Um, you go and that's in, just in the shrubs. That's just <laughs> in the shrubs. Yeah, you go into old fields. Okay, old field that was um, that was disturbed last year with a fire. Uh, it may have, or it was disturbed with a fire, and you also had to do a little bit of dormant season disking because it was getting dominated by grasses too much. You've got more of an annual forb content, a lot more ragweed coming up and pokeweed, old field asher. Um, and then you go over into another and old field that was three years old, and you have uh, more blackberries, more perennial grasses um, well, to this, where you've this got— is another... Another thing for diversity and then on, on your map is also mapping out your yearly, your prescribed burns. Yes. Every year that you were burned and also what season of burn. Even even month to month have yeah. different, different effects on your landscape. Mm-hmm. From one month to the next can have a, a wide difference in the effects on the landscape and and plants that you have that flourish from that burn so it's important to in your map have detailed records on when you burned yep so (laughs) we've we've color coordinated all of our habitat types and differentiated uh age of growth okay hopefully you need to put a key out on the side of on, on a piece of paper key them out so each color that you're using, give it a little box and write what it is. Now look at your farm and start over coloring in where all those habitat features are. And now once you've colored in all your old fields that are three-year-old disturbance or all your old fields that were burned last year and all your uh, all your shrub patches and all your mature timber closed canopy forest. That's red, and I really want to emphasize closed canopy forest is red. If you're in timber country, how much red do you see? How much red is there on your map? Now, start really paying attention to your grids and going, wow, this grid. Oh, I didn't even mention water holes and streams. Those are blue, and food plots are green. Um, crop fields are green, so different colors for div- uh, diversity with your food plots. So if you've got perennial clovers, that light green. If you've got annual uh, fall blend, it's dark green. Or f- soybeans are lime green. Whatever it is, just green. Now, so you look at those grids and you're going, man, this this these three grid marks here, this L-shaped of my boxes, is all red. Well, let's fix that. How can we add a different color to that grid, uh, to that unit? And then look over and say, okay, if you really want to dissect this, and you've got, let's say there's 40 acres within each one of them. How many spots can we put shrubs? Can we put 
um, a water hole? Can we put a food plot? Can we put a young forest and then put another young forest that's three years older than the other one? Can we put in, uh, is there anywhere for an old field to be reestablished? Um, is there any kind of glade restoration or grassland restoration we can do? You start doing that on your landscape and gritting this out. Our goal is to have as many colors as possible within each grid. Now where the property architecture comes in is making sure that the ones that are going to be security and cover are off your roadways to where you don't have deer bedding right on your roadway to where you're going to navigate through. And you want not only strategic, that, strategic diversity. Absolutely. There is a method to the madness. I've said before, it's like taking 20 bottles of glitter and dumping them out and spreading it all around where you got color everywhere. That's diversity. But there's a method to just having diversity scattered everywhere in a very chaotic form. <laughs> That's kind of how nature does it. We're looking to do it in a way that we can hunt it and we can and navigate through our farm and enjoy it to the fullest. So color coordinate your habitat features. Um, and the reason I say habitat features is because shrubs, just shrubs alone is not habitat. Just grass alone is not habitat. All naturally occurring on the landscape, providing the benefits to where an animal can survive and thrive is habitat. So we're looking at habitat features such as just shrubs, just um, herbaceous plants, just brambles, things like that. Now, I didn't even add brambles to this. Could add brambles to <laughs> to the colors. Um, we're going to run out of colors. You're going to run out of colors. You're going to have brown in there. <laughs> um, no, Yeah, so we got brown and blacks and all that stuff. <laughs> and we just want right. color everywhere, all right? Color, color, color. If you see, If you see a section of your farm that's all red, either buy a chainsaw or fire up your chainsaw or sharpen it up. Because we have to do, if our goal is to improve habitat and make it as beneficial as possible, um, and if a large majority of your farm is all red, we've got problems. We need to fix it. Um, and that's why, once again, importance of records and maps um, and understanding what we're doing, the disturbance, um, and making sure we have different different age structure and the reason for that let's say we're on a four-year burn plan is you're going to go from whatever habitat feature it is let's just say young forest um you've got i don't even remember what color pink i think i said light pink a little bit darker but still light pink darker pink and then dark pink and you're going to see that as you implement prescribed fire you're going to just see the the colors change over time because each year they'll get a little darker and a little darker and all of a sudden boom they'll go back to light pink after the fire so you get that rotation of different age structures that's going to knock that back into more of a uh within reach and within more of a beneficial state um and so that's the goal and that's how we use fragmenting the farm or gritting out the farm to make sure there's not something we're missing uh, well think about your another, deer population another key Another key to keeping all these records, not only will you see the changes in your habitat according to these records, if you're also keeping track of deer movements, you're also going to notice 
the movements according to these changes and realize, oh, if I have this along this and these different habitat features lining up, the deer movement really tends to move between those. <laughs> it's going to make your hunting better. Yes. So I, I think you just said this. I was looking at my final notes because as we get ready to wrap it up, we're over an hour. But look at the colors in conjunction with the time of the year. Animals happen to move great distance. Yeah. I, to me, how many I times? Said it, I said it lines up according to your deer movement. Okay. Well, there you go. How many times do you see? If it, it, I think, and we're even guilty of this. Okay. Where's the best winter cover? South facing slope with ad- adequate cover uh, and still has security. Okay. But how far do they have to go from that to get to areas that still have good food or there's lots of woody browse? They're traveling too far. No wonder they're not making it over there before dark. And I think this is this technique is so simple, but is so, so beneficial to not only a habitat manager, but a deer hunter. So And this is I mean, honestly, we could take notes to ourselves on this because we're just as guilty as anybody else. Absolutely. We're terrible, terrible at taking the time to do this. We've said it time and time again, and that's what part of this is hoping that people will learn from our mistakes. And if they did just buy a new property, they they go from the start and take notes because I would love to have gone back when we first started firing up the chainsaws and have pictures and records of everything we've done. Yep. And we completely messed up by an eagerness to get work done and not actually take the time to then sit down and write all this down. <laughs> Absolutely. Taking the time to write it down and, and document the transition is something we have not been uh, great at. Um, and so, but what we are good at is adding diversity on our farms. <laughs> and so, um, but I, I think one of the things too is like just having the ability to, to pull up a map, like an Onyx map, and just start changing, gridding out your your habitat features something so easily uh, so easy to do like that um and so yeah uh hopefully you guys uh can use this to your advantage um diversify your farm understand diversity within diversity and make your farm much more beneficial i mean if you if you did this and you really start keying in and and doing all this diversity uh and you start just look at it from a beneficial state to to wild turkeys or bobwhite quail going, okay, here's good uh here's good nesting cover, here's good uh you know bugging habitat. Um here is a good place that's a little bit more open, distur- disturbed area that the chicks can move around in. Um here's an area that is four years into our burn plan. We need we need to make sure we burn that next year. That way we can increase our usable space right here in this part of the farm. Um, it's just so many things that diversity, just diversity for the win. So, guys, well, Chad, thank you for coming on once again. Um, Anytime. Three weeks in a row, or three three podcasts in a row. Um, They're going to get tired of me pretty quick. Well, it seems like when you come on, we get on real big soapbox rants. So, um, <laughs> now they know what a, every what a – what a conversation with you and I I. riding in the truck would sound like. Um, 
And I know, I think we've got a podcast tomorrow, Matt and I will record about his trip to Ohio and West Virginia with all kinds of great tidbits. So, fellas, ladies, thanks for joining us once again on the Land of Legacy podcast. Wouldn't be here without you. Uh, thanks for all your support. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and also YouTube. Please go subscribe to the YouTube page. Lots of videos going on there. And uh, once again... We will see you next week. Yeah.